Wing came up to me before the service. He's got a, a Bible from 1829 that's falling apart, and it has notes in it, probably written with a quill. Uh, and to me, that's just the legacy that, that comes through the Word of God, and that when my relationship to that Word is in such a place that I wear it out, that you can see the visible signs of wear on the pages means that it's becoming engrafted. It's becoming part of who I am and what I am all about. Our series has been on grace for a long time, and I hope it never stops. Um, specifically now, the discipline, spiritual disciplines, even more narrow, Bible study, the place of the Word of God. And we're stalled there for a little bit, and I think keep thinking, okay, this will be the last week, and then I don't even get to the point when I wanted to talk about. So it won't be over today, uh, and that's okay. Uh, but we want to talk about the Bible, the Word of God, and specifically with the purpose of how do I get it from the page to the heart? How do I get it to where it needs to be? We looked at translations, and we've looked at some of the manuscript evidence. We're talking about Bible study, and it's engaging our minds with the objective Word of God. It's not a free-for-all for what we think it means, it's not subjective, it's objective, of God to take that order, what it says, everything about it, into ourselves, enabling us to be in sync with reality in a way that is good for us and for others. Uh, in sync with reality, that's a key phrase there. Uh, there's a lot of people, um, you might look at their life and say, you know, they're out of touch. You ever look at anybody that's like that? They're just not with it. You see, the Bible is the explanation to us in this world about the nature of reality. What matters in life? What really works in life? What doesn't work in life? And when I immerse myself in the order of the Bible and take what it says into my reality, all of a sudden life makes sense. Suffering makes sense, even though it's difficult. Difficulties that come along get perspective. I understand where strength comes from. I understand where peace comes from. To the extent I choose not to live in the pages of the scripture, I am out of sync with reality. I will not have peace. I will not have any of the things that the scriptures say because I'm out of sync with reality. You can't live out of sync with the way it's supposed to work and expect it to be okay. And so many people do that. They, live, they, they turn their back and say, the, the Bible, I just can put it over there. I really don't want to follow what the Lord has to say because I have this reality and I'm going to live this way and it will work out. And guess what? It doesn't. So in huma humanity automatically then turns back to God and says, oh, yes, no. Humanity says, well, there's another reality. Let me try this. Let me try that. To the point that we are in sync with the word of God, real life. Our life makes sense and has purpose. So as we looked at study last week, just to quick, quickly summarize, we looked at the modern Greek text, and you know, for some of you, it's of more interest than others, but bottom line, the Bible that you have, the translation that you have, is a reliable translation. Many good ones, many have strength, one not the best of all, but they all have a purpose. And if you look on the back table as you leave, I believe somebody, Becky, did you put some Bibles out there with labels on them and you can look at some different translations? I even put my Greek Bible from college back there if you want to see a Greek text and take a look at it. Just see the different kinds of Bibles that are back there and see what God 
reveals in his word each one having a different purpose and a different strength. And in these, each of those translations had different kinds of philosophies behind them. The more literal ones were called essentially literal, and it means to translate the meaning of every word into the original language understood correctly in its context into its nearest English equivalent. How did they say it back then? Those particular Bibles are best for serious Bible studies because they try to take the words and bring them over into English so you can pick each word and study them out. But there's other purposes in that dynamic equivalent. It translates the thoughts and ideas of the original into equivalent, equivalent thoughts or ideas in English and attempts to have the same impact on modern readers as the original had it on its own audience. Taking the Bible writer into today and say, how would he say it? What would he say? How would he word it? Those Bibles are great because they read better. They flow, and sometimes you get bigger concepts understood better. They have a purpose as well. Uh, but in summary for all of that, and we did look at a couple verses that kind of just illustrated the difference, and we kind of voted which one we liked better, and it was kind of a split audience here as far as which verse. We found easier to understand. And the bottom line is Bible study is, do I understand what I'm reading? What is the best scriptures for me to read to help me in my understanding of the word of God? So today, we're going to take a little bit of a broader perspective here, and we want to look at, okay, here's the original manuscripts, got my translation, that's all well and good. But if it doesn't get off my nightstand and into my heart, it's of little value. I could have the best translation that was ever made, but if it doesn't transform me, it really means nothing. So that's what we're going to be talking about in Bible study how do I take those pages that maybe I do or don't understand and bring them into my heart and mind? I don't know how many of you can remember if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior and you were a little older in life and you remember that day and that time. And you may kind of be able to relate to a very lost feeling and you look at this big book like, where do I start? What do I, what do, I do with this big thing? And, and someone will say, well, maybe start one of the Gospels, read about the life of Jesus, and they're all good things. And you may have started, and kind of your understanding may not have been fruitful. And you might have been discouraged, you might have stopped, and you may be a believer who's been saved for many years. And you get into the Bible, and you open up, I need to read my Bible, I need to read my Bible, and I'm going to go to Leviticus. <laughs> didn't happen. Didn't work well. Our understanding wasn't fruitful. And the purpose here, hopefully, is to kindle a passion in every one of us to hunger and thirst for the word of God, but also know how to understand it, how to make sense of what it, the scriptures have to say. So we're going to talk about the spirit and sweat of Bible study. How do you make it happen? How do you bring sense to the scriptures that were written 2,000 years ago? One verse that's sometimes misunderstood reads, and this is the role of the Holy Spirit, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true and is no lie, just that it has been taught you abide in him. Now that verse has been drastically misunderstood by a lot of people. They would look at a verse like that and say, okay, I've got the Spirit of God. He's in me. 
I don't need anybody to tell me anything. And if you're kind of the rebellious person doesn't like to listen to other people anyway, you like this verse. And you look at that and say, I don't need a preacher. I don't need a teacher. I got the Spirit of God. So when I open up the pages of this book, I'm going to read it. The God Spirit will tell me exactly what it means just as I read it. That's not what the verse is saying. Many people say, think that. Or they think that just having a Bible, somehow it just soaks into me. You know, I'll understand it just because I have it. I've got ten of them. That has to do something to me just because, you know, the proximity of Bibles around me. Or they'll think that just a casual reading will give them the fullness and depth that are, is in the Scriptures. It doesn't work that way. In fact, doing a little bit of Bible study helps us understand what that verse is really saying. Because a verse is always written in a context. There's verses around it. There's situations or things going on. So this whole verse, in clarifying the role of the Holy Spirit, when you look at the word teach, whoops. Okay, what's going on here? Uh, we got way ahead here. Okay, the word teach. And this the Bible dictionary helps you see what the original meaning is. It's something called a durative present. You're like, oh my goodness, what does that mean and what's the big deal about it? What it means is what's going on in this verse carries with it a, a time connotation. It's something that continually happens over and over again. Have any of you ever had anything at your house that you're supposed to fix or you're supposed to do and you've been putting it off and someone says to you, by the way, did you ever fix the couple days go by and it didn't get fixed. And they say to you, by the way, did you fix the, and a month goes by. By the way, did you ever take care of, oh my goodness, three weeks, a month, three months go by. Oh, by the way, did you ever. That's called the durative present. Some call it nagging. Um, you know, it's the idea that, that I need to be reminded continually about this thing because there's some reason I haven't done it. So what the scripture's saying in this verse is that they didn't need someone nagging them. And here it says that you don't need constant human reminding about the deity of Jesus. Now you read that verse and say, well, that verse doesn't say anything about the deity of Jesus. Read the whole context on your own. And you're going to see the problem here was that the, the false teachers were coming in denying the deity of Jesus Christ. So the writer here is telling them that, that you don't need a teacher to be constantly reminding you that Jesus is God. Because you already taught that way back at the beginning. And you have the Spirit of God in you that abides with you to keep you reminded of who Jesus is. So it's not a verse saying that you don't need a teacher. It's that you don't need a teacher to keep telling you the same thing over and over again because you already heard it, you learned it, you have the spirit in you that's supposed to keep it fresh within you. That puts a whole different meaning on it, but it, it gives us an idea about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within us to continually apply the word of God to keep it fresh within us. We need to learn. We need teachers, whether they come from books or they're in person, to help us in the understanding of the scripture. But once we've received it, we have the spirit of God that will help us apply, remember, 
keep it fresh within us. So in this particular context, and you can look through it, read the verses before it, that they were getting a little confused, and the, the, the deity of Jesus and the false teachers were having a little bit of influence upon them. So the writer here is saying, you know what? You don't need a teacher to tell you the same thing time after time. A couple versions or translations that have this, that give a little bit fuller explanation about the role of the Spirit. This is from the Weist Expanded Translation. But as for you, the anointing which you receive from him remains in you. And no need are you constantly having that anyone be constantly teaching you. That's a little awkward, isn't it? It doesn't read well, but do you get the idea a little bit more fully than you did in the other translation? Okay, but even as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, and even as he taught you, be constantly abiding in him. So this is a case where you read it in one translation, you read it in another one. It's not as readable, but it brings a little bit more of the meaning of the text to you. Uh, now we're going to talk about the role of sweat. The spirit of God lives within us to take the word of God, apply it to us. You've probably had the situation where you're reading the scripture and the verse just, just does something to you, that you feel it with in you something resonates or somebody's teaching or preaching and they say something from the word of God and all of a sudden there's like a burning and we read that in the scriptures there's that burning within you is like that's true that's right and your heart says amen to it that's the Holy Spirit working within you to illuminate the truth of God to make it real to bring it within your heart but as we talk about the part that we play that's the Bible study end of it and it says, do your best in 2 Timothy 2 to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker has, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Pretty straightforward verse. Some of your translations will say, study to show yourself approved. Some of them say, be diligent. And it all carries the same idea. Some expand it a little bit more. But what I want to do in this particular verse is, is look at it kind of from the original language, and, and we're going to look at some pieces of it, but I want to look at the overall structure to begin with. When it says, do your best, that is the main verb subject of the sentence. That's the big deal. Do your best. And we're going to look at what that word means in a minute. Then it's followed by two clauses and then a participle. And some of you are like, don't get Englishy on me. <laughs> I'm out of school. I don't even want to have to think about that. Well, there's, there's reasons for that, and I want to explain what I mean. There's something, the first phrase or clause is, is to present yourself to God as one approved. That's a clause. And if you really care a lot about grammar, it's an infantival clause. Who cares? And then it says that a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Second clause an oppositional clause. Good. Next one, rightly dividing or rightly handling the word of truth. That is a participle. Now, in Greek, it means a lot. It's very significant because when you have the verb, you always look for participles because participles unpack the verb. They give substance to it. So when I'm, whatever I'm doing my best at, I take the other two clauses out of there and say, okay, I'm going to take the infinitive clause out, I'm going to take the other clause out, and I'm just going to leave the participle, and I'm going to leave the main verb. 
do your best rightly handling the word of truth. That is the main idea of the verse. Whatever I'm doing my best, I'm not doing my best to be approved from God, like somehow he's not approval, and I've got to work really hard to gain his approval. It's not a verse about human effort. It's a verse about your relationship to the word of God, first and foremost. So when you're doing your best, you do it in rightly handling or studying the word of God. Then you bring the other clauses back into it. These clauses give you the why or the goal of Bible study. I do it so that I can present myself to God as one approved. So the way I handle the Bible and my relationship to it has a direct relationship or a goal to the approval or, or presenting myself as an approved person to God. It's not to gain his approval, but it's kind of the presentation of my heart to him in an approving kind of way because I've been studying the Bible. The Bible has a, a good place. Then the next clause lays right beside that. This is when it says present yourself to God as approved, a worker who not need to be ashamed sits right next to that and says, here's what I'm going to talk to you about approval. Let me explain that goal a little bit more. When you, you, you study the word of God and you rightly handle it, you're rightly related to it, you are a workman who is approved and there's no shame. You, you're, you're able to present yourself with a degree of satisfaction. So that's what's happening in the verse overall. Do your best to be rightly related and rightly handling the word of God. In so doing, you're making a presentation to the Lord of who you are as one who has done it in an approving kind of way so that there's no need for shame or thinking that somehow I missed doing the best that I could. So that's the overall structure. But I want to look at a couple of the words here. The first one, do your best. Literally, it means, uh oh, another durative imperative. The other one was the, the durative sense of present tense. This one is a durative imperative. What's an imperative? Has anyone ever told you, pick up your socks, clean your room, don't do that anymore, leave me some cookies, don't eat them all. Those kind of imperatives that come with a serious connotation to them. That's what this do it best is. Do it do your best to do this. It's something that is always there, but it's with a constant force, an imperative. It's to be zealous, eager, take pains, make intense, intense effort, be conscientious, hurry. It involves a need for quickness and urgency. When you look at doing something your best, it means that you've taken it seriously. This isn't just a quick well-wishing. Somebody's going to do something, and they're going out the door, and you're busy doing something else, and you just, it's not a casual, oh, as you're going, just do, do well, do your best, have a good time. It's, it's not one of those superficial kind of statements. This is, if you could picture the locker room before the Super Bowl, okay? That's the intensity going on here, and it kind of fits for today. And in that, the coach is giving his speech, and he walks up to the best quarterback in the NFL, which is Patrick Mahomes, and, and goes up to him. And, and he just doesn't say to the whole team, hey, guys, when you're out there, do your best. 
break a leg. Uh, you know, it, it's not superficial. It's taking the star quarterback, you, right, looking in your eyes with intensity and saying there's a big game out there. Something huge is going on. You need to get to it. You need to go out there and do your best. Give all that you have to this endeavor. This isn't casual. This isn't just the fact that the Bible is a good book and it's really worth your reading. God is saying, you know what? You want to really, really do your best before me? Get your Bible out and give yourself to it. Dedicate yourself to it. Do your best to handle this properly. I don't know if you've ever done a project before where you're maybe not doing your best with it. And someone comes in and they're saying, you know what? That looks good. And you say, well, don't look too close. <laughs> because you know that the edges are a little ratty. And that things aren't quite where they should be. So in this, this admonition here, it's doing our best. It's that if someone were to look closely, it would be okay. So we have to ask ourselves the question, in relation to the word of God, am I doing my best? If I were to give myself a grade, let alone the Lord, about my rightly handling and the place of word of God has in my life, what would I give myself? Am I doing my best? Would I give myself a C, D minus? Oh, you know, I haven't really had any time this month to really seriously open the word of God. Scriptures tell us, do your best all the time. And it's a command. It's not a suggestion. A durative presence means it's always before us. This command to do this, to always be involved in the word of God with a sense of urgency and hurry. In other words, I can do it later. No. I need to have the word of God constantly abiding in my life all the time. To do your best, to present. means to formally present something to a superior to place beside or put at someone's disposal. So I am taking this that I am doing my best to be rightly related in studying the word of God. And in doing this, I am presenting this to the Lord as the best that I can do with his word. That I'm giving a presentation to him. If I were to tell you right now that next Sunday you're going to give a 10-minute presentation in church about the topic of your choice. Now, I wouldn't try to say that because some of you, I'd be really scared. But if I say you've got a 10-minute presentation to give, you are not going to ignore that. You're going to realize that a presentation is expected. I need to be ready for it. I need to be prepared and especially if you don't like public speaking and it makes you want to throw up with the thought of it, that whole presentation would even take more effort. You'd be more intense about it. And you would be all the time, it would be in your mind. You'd be thinking about it. I got to give a presentation. I got to give a presentation. And you'd be, even when you're doing something else, it would be in your head. You'd be thinking it through. That's the idea here. When you're rightly handling the word of God, when it has its right place in your life, you realize it's part of your presentation. It's part of what you're giving to the Lord. So that's why the scriptures are supposed to be part of you all the time. It's to be something you meditate on, something that you keep with 
in you. If you happen to ever seen Lord of the Rings, I haven't. Uh, think of Pippin offering his service to Denethor. He presented himself, and for some of you, that just gave it all to you right there. For others, it didn't mean a thing. But, but it's presenting your service to a superior. Here is the best of what I have. I've handled your word properly to present. Approved means tested and esteemed worthy. It's used of testing the genuineness of money or a person proven in combat. So as I do my best with the word of God, as part of my presentation to him, it shows the genuineness of my heart. And that's the theme of the verse. Do your best. Give diligence. Put effort. Put sweat into it. Because it, and you do it with the word of God because it's your presentation. And in presenting that, you are showing then that you are approved. You are genuine. I know there are many times in school, and I know teachers get busy, but have you ever done homework and got it back and felt like the teacher never looked at it? You know, and it's just kind of like busy work. That's not what the Bible is. The teacher is looking at it. The teacher does care. The teacher's attention is there. So the word of God isn't supposed to be something I get up in the morning out of duty and I get my little devotional book, I read my verse, I did it. I did my devotions. Therefore, God likes me better today and I'll probably be blessed because I did this thing. It's not what the Bible's all about. The Bible is there as a love letter saying, here it is, the God of the universe revealed himself to you, and he has desired for you to do your best to be right related to him. Anything less is that approved workman that's not, that is a sinner, that is not rightly related to the word of God. Approved, not rubber stamping it, knowing the teacher's looking at the homework. Approved, rightly handling it. And this is a very powerful word here. It's the participle. It's the one that gives meaning to what doing your best looks like. It's to cut a path in a straight direction, to cut a road across the country so that a traveler can get to their destination, to analyze formally and correctly, or it also means setting the proper limits or boundaries to dissect or to expound. There's a lot there in that definition. In case you don't get everything that's on the slides, they're going to be online this week as well because there's a lot more information coming that we'll never have time to get through. Rightly handling means that I cut it straight. I use the tools available to study the scripture. Now, in the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about how that happens and what those tools look like. But what I do is I cut it straight. I, I don't just pick a single little verse, and if you've heard of people have just opened the Bible up and pointed to a verse and thought, that's what I was led to, and that's what God's going to do. And that might work a few times, but the story always goes about the one guy that did that. He put his finger up and went like this without any rhyme or reason, and it said, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. I'm like, oh my goodness, we can do better. And then it said, what thou do, do quickly. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You know, it just doesn't work. That's not a formal method of Bible study. 
okay? To, to rightly divide it means I approach it with intent, I approach it with purpose, with a desire to cut it straight, to handle it, to know what the boundaries are, to know what the text actually says. What did it mean when it was written? Then we can look into how it applies. A couple translations that give some of the meaning that you see here. Let's look at the Amplified Bible. It says, study and be eager. And what they do in the Amplified Bible is put parenthesis around Greek ideas that maybe weren't exactly in the original text. Study and be eager to do your utmost to present yourself to God, approved, tested by trial, a workman who has no cause to be ashamed, correctly analyzing and accurately dividing, and then it has the parenthesis, rightly handling and skillfully teaching the word of truth. Another translation, Kenneth Weiss in his expanded translation says, bend your every effort to present yourself to God, approved, a workman unashamed, expounding soundly the word of God. Are we doing our best for the Lord? If we are, we are rightly laid to the word of God. That's the scriptures tell us. That's where it points us. I was reading, I don't know I'm a, if you've heard me quote John Piper before. I'm a John Piper fan. I like his writings a lot. Can't agree with everything. But when I read his heart towards the word of God, it really opened up a lot to me. Have you ever at some age in your life, older, looked back and say, you know, if I were young again, and I knew everything I knew now, I would do things differently. And you think about bringing a grown-up brain to all the energy of youth, and it's like, wow, I could really do a lot, because now I'm too old and I'm too tired, but I sure know what I would have done. Well, John Piper did a little bit about that. And I wonder if we would do the same thing, how we would say this. If you could take your grown-up brain and apply it to Bible study, at the age of 22, if I knew what I knew now, this is how I would view the Bible when I was young. And I want us to kind of, what he says sounds a little complicated, but I want you to hear the heart of what it means to do your best to be right re related to the word of God. He starts off by saying, I resolve every day in reading my Bible to push through the haze of vague awareness. That happens when you read the scripture sometimes. I don't really know that for sure. I got a little bit out of it. Push through the haze of vague awareness to the very wording of the text itself. And that's where he just starts. I want to see this. And then he says, I would push into and through the wording of the text to the intention of the author's mind, both human and divine. I want to penetrate deeply into this word. I want to see the intention and purposes behind that. And then he says, I would push into and through that intention to the reality. And we talked about Bible study being in sync with reality. To the reality behind all the words, grammar, and logic. Was that enough? No, he goes on to say, I would push into that reality until it was an emotionally experienced reality till I felt the truth of it, till it comforted me, till it convicted me or whatever, with emotions that correspond to the nature of that reality. Okay, is that enough? No. He goes on. 
I would push into and through this proportionally emotional experience of the reality behind the text until it took form in word and deed in my life. That's Bible study. Pushing through all of that. That's enough? No. There's another step. I would push through this emotionally charged word and deed until others saw the reality and join me in this encounter with God's word. Now, there's a heart that wants to study the scriptures purposefully and understand why I am doing this, to dig into it, to make it part of who I am in every way, shape, or form. The word of God buried into our life. Now, there's a couple different kinds of Bible study, and we're just going to just going to mention a couple of them that you could be involved in. There is a Bible study that is devotional. This is kind of like grabbing a quick snack. Could you live your life on quick snacks? I, I try, but <laughs> it's not good for you. It's not healthy. And sometimes our devotions will rely on a book. Sometimes the book is born out of good Bible study. Sometimes it's just picking a verse and not maybe really paying attention to the meaning and context of it. But it has a place. There is a place where I need my energy bar. I need the quick fix. There's devotional studies. There's through the Bible reading plans. Y two websites you can go to, uversionorbible.com and other things, places where you can go. Some of them are chronological, where it takes the Bible in the order that things happen, not necessarily in the 66 books. There are Bible study methods like that. You can do word studies, um, the word love in the Bible. In Greek, there's at least six different words for the word love in the Bible. You could do a Bible study and, and say, I want to see what love means in the scripture and look at these different Greek words. And there's more Greek words for love than aren't in the Bible. And sometimes you can learn by the fact that they're not in the Bible. Why not? Because these other loves are higher and more important. You could do a word study. You could do a theme study. I want to learn about angels. I want to learn about sin or the church. And there's two big theme-type studies. When I was in college, systematic theology was the thing. You take the Bible in chunks and you look at it in these different compartments. Today, biblical theology is bigger. That's where you look at the themes of the Bible. I want to see Jesus everywhere. I want to see him in the Old Testament. Uh, I want to see him in Genesis. And it takes the same theme and traces it through, but they're great theology books and ways to study. The best way personally, to dig into the Bible is an inductive Bible study. It makes observations on a passage of Scripture and then draws conclusions based on those observations. You don't do this five minutes before you leave for work in the morning. This is not that kind of study. This is the kind of study where you use the tools available and you dig into the Scriptures, and that study never really stops on any particular passage because there's so much more and there's so much to learn. Three quickies, what do you do when you do an inductive Bible study? You make observations. You discover what the Bible says and ask a ton of questions about the text. Who, what, when, where, why? What context is it in? You just bombard it with questions. You put all your observations down, and then you get to the interpretation stage, and this is where study tools come in. What does it mean? I gathered all this information about the scriptures. Now what does it mean? And then the third step in doing that kind of Bible study is application. Discover how it works. What does it mean in my life? 
what does it look like when I live this passage out? Now, there are whole books just to teach you those steps because those steps unlock the great treasures of the scripture and what the Bible has to say. There are tools out there, and again, you're not going to catch all these right now, and this is why I'm going to put the slide online. But when I first started studying the Bible seriously, I was in high school. I cared a lot about knowing the Word of God. And the first thing they told me to get is you need to get yourself a good concordance. And if you don't know what that is, it's somebody who took the time to look at where every place in Scripture where a specific word appears. So if you look up the word love, you see every place in the Bible where the word love is. And these concordances have little numbers behind them that are called Strong's numbers, and I'm going to talk about this in weeks ahead. What they do is key you in how to look up the meaning of this word other places. There's some concordances for the King James, the NIV, or New American Standard, and it helps you start to unlock the Bible. So I remember as a high school kid, got to get my concordance, and I got my Strong's exhaustive concordance of the Bible. And I thought I just had gotten a new snowmobile. It was great. I had my concordance. So I went to somebody. I, I want to know the word of God. What, what do I do next? And they told me, and they gave me something called the treasury of scripture knowledge. What this was, was a place that could take a theme. And then if, if you looked it up in there, it would give you all the other verses to trace that theme. Some of you might have a, something called a Thompson Chain Reference Bible. does the same thing. A lot of times your study notes will do that. But it helped me see a theme go through the scriptures. So I got, I got that, and I go, okay, this is neat. I can start seeing more about the Bible. But I'm like, I, I want to understand the words better. So somebody said, you need to get Vine's Expository Dictionary of the New Testament. So I went out, saved my money. I had a paper route. I was, saved my money, bought my Vine's Expository Dictionary. There's a copy in the library. That helped me understand some of the meanings behind these Greek words, some of the fuller sense that maybe the translation couldn't capture just in that one simple verse. Then I went to the Old Testament, and I got Wilson's Old Testament word studies, and these were perfect for where I was and what I knew at the time. As years have gone on, I've had those. I wished these, uh, okay, this is Thayer's Greek lexicon. That was my next one, like college time. I need a bigger one than Vines. I need something to study more. So I got Thayer's lexicon. If they were out at the time, Spiros Zodiardes, anybody ever heard of him? He's got some awesome dictionaries to help you unlock the Greek language, and, and one for the Old Testament. I would have bought these in the day if they were available because they help unlock treasures, your tools for studying the Word of God. How many of you ever attempted to fix something at your house that you had no idea how to fix? What do you do? Or you know how to do it? YouTube. I remember doing my, my car door and the window by YouTube and fixing the, the, the you know, lifter up or downer thing. And, 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 and doing that, I'm like, three seconds. Okay, take that screw out. Come back. Hit it again. I had a tool. There are tools for doing everything. There's tools for understanding the word of God. As time has gone on and where I am now when I study a verse of scripture, every one of these comes into play. And I have computer software that looks up that Greek word in all of these plus more places. There's tools and tools and tools that you can have to help you understand the word of God. In today's world, anybody ever see a computer? 
It's amazing the Bible study software that's out sometimes for free or at little cost to help you unlock the Word of God. One place, and this is kind of like public domain stuff, Christian Classics, Ethereal. This place last week when I read the preface to the 1611 King James Bible. Where in the world do you get a copy of the preface to the 1611? Right there, that website. Has classics beyond, you know, Calvin's commentaries, all of them are there. My three favorite are right here. Esort, free software. You can download it. It lives in your computer. It's not in the cloud. You can use it. It's powerful. You can buy or there's free resources for it. The main one I use is logos.com, that software, huge, and preceptaustin.org. Those are my three. But if you want to look other places, you can go all over those. And to all those websites that have tools for studying the Word of God and unlocking it if you want to do your best to present to the Lord your relationship his word saying God this is what I'm doing with the treasure that you have given to me in closing two quick things about Bible study the very first one is for your heart the second one is more for your mind pray do not come to the word of God in an academic fashion there are academic principles to interpret the word of God but when you're coming to the king of the universe who uses his spirit to guide you. You humbly pray, say, Lord, I'm coming to be rightly related to your word. Teach me, show me, help me get sin out of my life that's blocking your spirit from working. And secondly, this sounds strange, but if I could give you one piece of advice for Bible study, is to never read a Bible verse. That's that same thing. What do you mean never read a Bible verse? I want you to tell me later on after the service, what do you think that means? Because in two weeks when we talk about Bible study, we're going to look at context a whole lot more. Never read just a Bible verse. We're going to observe our communion at this time. It's a celebration of the God, of the Savior who has died on our behalf as revealed in God's word. It's a celebration of God. It's a celebration of sacrifice. It's a testimony to you being rightly related to him and to his word, that he is important, that he is primary in your life. If you know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're more than welcome to participate with us this morning. But if you're struggling and you're not in a good place, don't feel obligated to do this. This is a testimony of a heart in sync with God. If your heart's not in sync, take a moment, get it there. That's why the scriptures tell us at communion, let a man examine himself to see that that relationship is, is good. Things are well with you and the Lord. And then you do this as a remembrance, a testimony to the promises, to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we do it until he comes again. We do it in hope. So we look back and we look forward at the same time. Father, help us as we enter into our communion time now to see you in all of your glory and to make this a testimony 
of our right relationship to the cross and our right relationship to the hope of heaven. This do in remembrance of you, Father, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup. In Jesus' name, amen.